Good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship. Uh, Merry Christmas. I'm so excited to be here as we celebrate the season of Advent together. I don't know about your household, but my kids are getting very excited for Christmas. Uh, this year, we just bypassed the like countdown to Christmas thing uh, because they ask like 17 times a day how many days it is till Christmas. I just like can't keep updating it that often, right? Like, they want like an hour count, right, till Christmas here. So, um, but anyway, so excited to, to, for Christmas to come. Excited to have you with us. If you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Um, said as well, we're going to continue on in our series in the Gospel of John together. We've been working our way through the Gospel of John for the last couple of months. We'll be in the Gospel of John all the way through the end of Easter. And actually, we're going to come back right after Easter and circle back around to a few of the passages we didn't have time to get to. And so it'll be like a B-sides, right, of John, things that we missed on the back end of John. So we're excited to do that. But uh, this morning, we're going to be in chapter 8 as we continue to see Jesus as the fulfillment of number of Old Testament. Testament uh, feasts and those kinds of things. But before we dive into chapter 8, if you're new or you're just joining us for the first time, let me just very briefly catch you up on some context for the Gospel of John that's going to set up our time together in it. We've seen from the beginning how like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John is a kind of documentary about Jesus' life and ministry. And what we've seen as well is that John's Gospel is very different than the other three. He ignores all kinds of things they focus on. He brings us a bunch of new things that the other ones haven't talked about yet. And we've seen throughout that the reason for those differences has everything to do with the fact that John's writing his gospel about 20 or 30 years after the other three were written. And he's writing it to an audience that would have been very familiar with those other accounts of Jesus, likely many of whom have been raised by family or, or grandparents or parents who were some of the first people to come to faith in Jesus. And so he's writing to an audience that would have been very familiar with Jesus. And it seems as though much of the problem John's trying to address with the Gospel of John is that people have just become far too familiar with him. And so at the heart of what John's trying to do throughout the, the, his, his documentary about Jesus is to kind of wake people up from this groggy familiarity with Jesus. To, he wants them to see the, the eternity-altering magnitude of who Jesus said that he was and proved himself to be. Because what John understands is that a mere head-level knowledge about Jesus doesn't do anything for anybody. Instead, the thing that saves, the thing that gives life, the thing that, that brings life with it is a heart-level belief in Jesus that actually transforms our lives. And so that's what John's after. As he tells us all these new stories about Jesus, as he highlights who he is, he wants to wake us up to the magnitude of who Jesus really is, that we might believe in him. One of the ways we've seen John trying to do that throughout the gospel is, is we talked about, like we talked about last week, is that one of the ways he does that is by showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of all that a number of the Old Testament Testament feasts were kind of foreshadowing and remembering and pointing forwards to as well. In chapter 6, we saw John highlighting how Jesus' miraculous feeding of the 5,000 and his claim that he's the bread of life who gives up his life for his people. We saw all that happened in the lead up to the feast of Passover because Jesus was trying to highlight that he's the fulfillment of all that that feast was about, all that it was foreshadowing. And last week in chapter 7, we saw how Jesus' invitation for anyone who was thirsty to come to him and not just drink, but to be filled to overflowing with this life-giving water of his spirit. We saw all that happened in the context of the Feast of Tabernacles. And 
and specifically of, of this water ceremony that they would do every morning. Because Jesus was trying to show people that in him, all that, the, all that that feast was looking forward to and all that it was remembering, it found its ultimate fulfillment in him. That he was the life-giving water of God's spirit was being poured out into a thirsty world. And, and it's through him that salvation and renewal would come to all who would come to him and drink. And, what we're going to see this morning as we continue on in chapter 8 is that there's, there's actually another ceremony that happened as a part of the Feast of Tabernacles that, that took place during that feast that found its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus as well. There was a, another ritual, this time it was one that happened every night and in the temple courts, and it sets the stage for Jesus' famous claim that he is the light of the world. It's the second one of the I am statements that Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John, declaring his divinity and the reality that he's God. And, and as we take a look at this passage and Jesus' claim to be the light of the world, what we're going to see this morning is that as the light of the world, what Jesus does is that he reveals the truth. He reveals the truth about God to us. He reveals the truth about ourselves to us. But more than just revealing the truth, what we're going to see is that Jesus invites us to walk in the truth he shows us. Because what he wants is for us to have the life that he came to offer. And it comes only as we follow him, as we walk in the light that he reveals. And so, such a perfect passage for us as we celebrate the season of Advent and anticipate Christmas. Can't wait to show it to you this morning. So let's pray, we'll dive in and see what God's word has to say. God, thanks so much for you and for your word and for our time together to study it this morning. And yeah, God, we're just grateful that uh, as, we, as we gather in this season of Advent, as we remember our need for a Savior and why Christmas is so good, because it's this reminder that a Savior's come. God, we're grateful this morning for the reminder in your word that you're the light and that you reveal not just uh, that you are the Savior, but you reveal that you're the Savior we so desperately need. And so we ask God as we come this morning that you might graciously keep opening our hearts to the reality of the truth about you and about ourselves and about our need for you. And we pray that it would be good news that brings life to us, not just today, but every day. And so uh, for all that, God, we need you. I certainly can't do it. And so I pray that your spirit might fill and empower me and enable each of us to respond rightly to your word this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, we're going to be this morning in John chapter 8. Verses 12 through 36 begins this way. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you have no idea where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one, but if I do judge, my decisions are true, because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who has sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. And then they asked him, well, where is your Father? You don't know me or my father, Jesus replied, for if you knew me, then you would know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts near the place where the offerings were put. And yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Once more, Jesus said to them, I'm going away and you'll look for me and you'll die in your sin for where I go, you cannot come. 
And this made the Jews ask, will he kill himself? Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, and if you don't believe that I am he, then you will indeed die in your sins. Who are you? they asked. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I've heard from him, I tell the world. Well, they did not understand that he was telling them about his father. And so Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you'll know that I am he. And that I do nothing but my own, on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, then you are really my disciples. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And now a slave is no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. And so if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. Well, there is a lot going on in our passage this morning, but all of it begins and is kind of centered around this claim that Jesus makes in the very first verse, in verse 12, right? He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That is a pretty audacious claim that Jesus is making about himself. But in order to really understand how audacious it really is and how serious and what Jesus is really saying, you actually, like last week, you need, to find a, you need to understand a little bit more of the context about the feast in which it was placed and the ritual that was surrounding it. You see, like we talked about last week, the Feast of Tabernacles is the setting for chapters 7, 8, and 9 in John's Gospel. So there's three chapters here. John tells us at the beginning of 7 that the Feast of Tabernacles is the, it's the setting for, for these three chapters. And it was this seven or eight day celebration that took place every fall where God's people, at God's, God's command, they commemorated God the way God had provided for them in the past as they journeyed through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they rejoiced in God's current provision because they just had brought in the harvest. And, and it was about pointing them ahead to God's future provision and their dependence on Him, both in a physical and a spiritual kind of way. And we saw last week how every morning as part of this festival, there was this water ceremony where the priests would draw water from a pool of Siloam and bring it up to the, to the temple and bring it to the, pour it out on top of, on top of the altar. And we saw how uh, that ritual was meant to remind people about how God had provided water for his people out of the rock in the wilderness. But there was also a nightly ritual that was meant to be a, a reminder of another way that God had provided for his people while they were in the wilderness. And it took place in the exact spot that John tells us in verse 20 that Jesus is speaking from, right? The area of the temple courts right near the treasury is where, where, is where John tells us happened. You see, in that area, during the festival, there was these four incredibly huge candelabras that were set up in the temple courts, right? Basically like these giant torches that were set up there. And most, of the, most accounts say that they were higher than the highest walls of the temple. Well, what happened is that every night there, there was priests who would climb the ladders up to these giant candelabras and they would light these humongous torches and they gave off so much light that it's not just that the temple courts were full of light, but basically the whole city of Jerusalem was lit up by these gigantic torches at the center. 
And the people, as, as they saw the torches lit, they would sing the words of Psalm 27, and they'd remind themselves, it says, that the Lord is our light and our salvation. And they would dance and they would celebrate into the wee hours of the night. And at the heart of what this ritual was doing is reminding God's people about Exodus chapter 13 and the story of how God had led his people while they were wandering in the wilderness by appearing to them in the day as a pillar of cloud and in the night as a pillar of great fire, lighting their way. And if you remember in the story in Exodus chapter 13, what happens is that God appears as, as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night, and, and he does that in order to lead his people. And so whenever the, the cloud moved or the fire moved, then, then God's people would pick up and follow and move. And when that cloud got to Mount Sinai, there was this story about how the cloud would come down on the mountain with fire and with thunder. And when God's people, when they built the tabernacle, it says that this cloud came and dwelled over the tabernacle and descended on it. And finally, when God's people built the temple, there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 8 about how God's spirit fills the temple as a cloud. And the reality was in that story, and what everyone understood is that that cloud and that pillar of fire, that wasn't just like a random cloud that God had kind of put there for a reason. It wasn't just a giant a fire in the sky. No, that was the very presence of God. It was His glory made manifest in the world. His presence near His people. And so every night of, of this festival, God's people, they'd light these torches, these humongous torches as a reminder to them about how God had come near to His people, how He'd led them in the middle of the night with great fire, and that He was the light that led them. And on the last night of the feast, Right, every night of the feast, first, all the first nights of the feast, they would light these torches every night. On the very last night of the feast, they would extinguish the lights. And it was this incredible moment of just sadness for people because not only because it was the end of this really joyful festival that everyone loved to celebrate, but because in, in extinguishing those torches, what was present very clearly before God's people was this very stark reminder that the cloud of God's presence it hadn't been seen in the temple or anywhere else for hundreds of years. See, it's a moment that would have left everyone there longing. Longing for this promise in Isaiah chapter 60 to be fulfilled. Isaiah says it this way. He speaks about this coming day when God himself will be the light for his people. When he'll dwell with them. He says it this way. He says, one day, uh, the day will come when your sun will never set again. And your moon won't wane. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of sorrow will end. See, and it's in the midst of this really emotionally kind of pregnant moment, full of sadness and this longing as the Feast of Tabernacles comes to its end, John tells us, that Jesus comes into the temple courts right in front of these giant extinguished torches. And he comes and says, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me won't ever walk in darkness, but they'll have the light of life. You see, Jesus was being very deliberate about exactly what he was saying and where he was saying it. And Jesus wasn't claiming that he was a light that could shine and give some kind of light in the midst of the darkness. Jesus is saying that he is the light. 
that he's the pillar of fire that led God's people in the wilderness, that he's the very presence of God's spirit made manifest in the world amongst his people, that in him this glorious, light-giving, direction-providing presence of God that they were all longing for in that moment had come to not just be a longing for them anymore, but to dwell with them as his people, to be their light and their life and their truth and to show God to them. Jesus says, I don't just know about the light. I'm not just a light. He says, I am the light. I'm the source of it. I'm God. See, every other world religion is founded by a person who says they can tell you about the light. They can tell you where it's from or where it comes from, that they have some insight into it. And yet Christianity is different because it is founded by someone who doesn't say that they know about the light, but who says They are the light, the very source of it. You see, Jesus is in no uncertain terms claiming that he is God. And you know that the people understood the gist of his claim because John tells us at the end of verse 20 that nobody could seize him, which means that they tried to, right? Because what they heard was a man who was claiming to be God. And yet in the midst of Jesus' claim, they understand that he's claiming something about his divinity, and yet they miss what he's really showing them about who he is. You see, Jesus' claim to be the divine light isn't just telling us about who he is, it's also revealing something about what he's come to do. See, the thing that light does is it gives sight. It helps you to see. It reveals the truth. What Jesus is saying in those first paragraphs is that one that he's come to do is reveal the truth about God. You see, light enables you to see. Without light, you can't see anything. You can kind of feel your way around a place and learn about it, right? But you can't ever get the, the true glimpse of it. I, I don't know if you've ever tried to check into an Airbnb. I don't know why. Every single, every single one I've ever tried to check into, I'm always getting there at like 11.30 p.m., right? Everything's dark, and you're like, you have no idea what's going on, and you're feeling around. You're trying to find the light switches because you're like running into cabinet doors and all kinds of stuff, Right? See, that's what Jesus is talking about here, right? He says, with, that's the way it is with us and God. See, on our own, we are mired in darkness. We're like blind people, unable to see God clearly, unable to know the truth about him. And we can kind of feel our way around and get some kind of vague ideas. But without Jesus, you cannot know the, you cannot know the truth about God. Jesus says in verse 9, verse 19, he says, if you knew me, you'd know the Father. And what he's saying is that to know him is to know God. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's very nature and character. He is the perfect embodiment. And so to know God is wrapped up in knowing Jesus. Missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus is the true light that shines on every human being. There is no other light that enables us to see things as they really are. And things are as they really are shown to be in the light of Jesus because he is the one through whom they all came to be. That's what Jesus is talking about in verse 23 when he says like, hey, you're from below, I'm from above. He says, guys, listen, the reason you know I'm from, I can tell the truth is because I can see it. I'm not from here like every one of you. I'm the one who made this all, not the one who just dwells in it. You see, but as the light of the world, Jesus isn't just revealing the truth about God to us. 
He's also, we see in the passage, revealing the truth about ourselves to us. See, verse 12, he goes on, he says, Whoever follows me won't ever walk in darkness. You see, in the good news of Jesus' promise, right, it's predicated on the bad news that without him, you are walking in darkness. You see that without him, all of us are walking in darkness. Later in the passage, Jesus goes on to say, he fleshes out what that means. He describes how, we, how walking in darkness means that we're slaves to sin. And he says that unless we come to faith in him, that our slavery to sin will always end in our death. What he means by all of that language, when he's talking about slavery to sin and spiritual blindness and, and darkness, what he's talking about is how we not only live in opposition to God and his ways, but that we are living in such a way in the midst of darkness that we don't even know that what we're doing is wrong. We're just doing whatever seems best to us, whatever we think will give life and fulfillment. We're just stumbling around in the dark looking for truth trying to feel our way to whatever it is we're looking for. And yet Jesus says what's actually true is that we're blind to the reality that our desires aren't freeing us and they're not fulfilling us. They're just instead enslaving and killing us. And I don't know about you, uh, but that's not an encouraging diagnosis of the situation. And you're sitting there like, Brandon, I thought we were like celebrating Advent and Christmas. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but this is a terrible Christmas message so far, Right? Uh, and it is. It really is kind of in that way. Except that you have to understand that the heart of Christmas is this reminder that a Savior has come. And good news of a Savior is only good if there's bad news that you need one. See, at the heart of Advent, and the heart of the joy that comes with Christmas, the reason why there's life there is because it's a reminder that we needed saving and that the Savior we needed came. You see, while that truth is hard to hear, it's better than not knowing what the problem is. It's better than just wandering around in darkness still. Last week, uh, Emma woke up and one of her teeth had moved. She had been spent the whole night crying and waking up a ton of time. I woke up, one of her teeth had moved and her face was starting to swell up. And so we took her into the dentist and, and he immediately knew what was going on, right? And he said, yep. He took two seconds, he took a look, he knew immediately, yep, this tooth is infected, like you're going to need a root canal, you're going to have to go wherever, right? And that was obviously concerning, but the good news was is that he knew exactly what needed to happen. Now, could you imagine going to the dentist, your daughter's face is swelling up, and he's like, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, I don't know, put some ice on it, see what happens. You know, it's probably everything, I'm sure it's going to be fine, right? That's not comforting, Right? That's terrifying as a parent, right? See, the same is true as we think about like the darkness in our world and the spiritual condition around us. It is impossible to look at the world and let alone yourself and not see darkness. Just like it was impossible for me to look at my daughter and not know something was wrong, it is impossible for us to look at the world and not know something is terribly wrong. There is a darkness that is there the problem is, is that we think the cause of the darkness is somewhere out there. That it's 
economics or politics or technology or society or a million other things. And if we just had better wealth dispersion or better governments or if we had better technology or more tolerant society and all the problems that we would see, they just kind of finally go away. But what Jesus is saying is that the problem, the midst of the darkness, in the midst of all the things you look at and you see, this is not right. The problem out there is not, it's not a problem that's out there. The root of that problem, Jesus says, it's in here. We didn't get here in verse 37. Jesus goes on, he says, the reason for all the darkness, the reason all of it is is because they have rejected him. That they don't have room for him. That they've rejected the light. And that's the very essence of what sin really is. You see, sin is this condition in our hearts where we stand in rebellious opposition to God. We, we reject his ways and his rule in our lives. We tell God like the Mythbusters, right? We say, God, we reject your reality and substitute our own. We'll be the ones who decide what's true and right and good. And that's the cause of all the darkness that we see, and we blame it on everything else but ourselves because we absolutely do not want to admit that the problem is really in us. But the problem is not just out there, but that's the sin that dwells in here. The pastor I listened to this week, he said it this way, if you take the language of sin out of the society, you do not remove the effects of sin, you just make it more confusing when you inevitably experience it. You see, you live, we, you and I, we live in a world that is deeply broken. There is absolutely something wrong there. And Jesus comes and his light shines in such a way that it not just reveals the truth about God, but it reveals the reality of what's wrong with us and what's wrong with our world. And that while he speaks the truth, that the hard truth he tells us is that we've rejected him. It's a hard diagnosis And yet it's one Jesus offers himself as the solution to. That leads us to the last part of the passage this morning. You see, there's this response that Jesus calls us to. See, the promise that Jesus makes of light and life that he offers is predicated on responding to who he claims to be. Right? He says at the end of verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. At the end of verse 30, uh, 31 and 32, Jesus, or at the end of the passage, Jesus says, right, whoever keeps my commands, that they'll know the truth, and the truth will set them free. You see, there's only two ways to respond to Jesus' claim to be the light of the world. You can either accept it, you can receive it, and follow him in the truth. You can admit that without him you cannot see what is true about God and about yourself. That you can agree with the truth that his light reveals about who God is and who you are. You can trust in his rescue to save you from slavery to sin. And you can submit to his guiding leadership in your life and walk in the light that he's come to give you and have life. Or you can reject it. And you can continue walking in darkness, which is basically what we see the Pharisees doing throughout the whole Gospel of John. They basically, in the passage this morning, they call him a liar who's bearing false testimony. See, in chapter 3, we saw earlier this year, Jesus speaking with Nicodemus. He is absolutely unsurprised by this response. And Jesus and in that chapter, he explains to Nicodemus, exact, John explains exactly why people respond that way. He says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light 
because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. See, what John is saying is that the reason why people reject Jesus as the light of the world is because when his light shines, what it reveals is the reality of our sin. And that's not fun. And people like the darkness more than they like the light because they love their sin and they don't want to acknowledge it for what it really is and they don't want to admit that their desires aren't really fulfilling and they don't want to acknowledge the pain that it's actually causing them and others and they just want to keep doing whatever they want to do. They don't want it exposed. You see, the light of the world was standing right in front of these Pharisees who had spent their whole lives proclaiming that they knew the truth about God and yet they cannot see him. And the rejection of Jesus is rooted in a desire to avoid being exposed. See, receiving the light would expose what we see throughout the Gospels is that they loved money. And they loved the praise of people. And they loved power. And they loved influence. And they loved control. And they loved approval. And they loved the comfort that their roles got them. And they loved all that stuff more than they loved God. You see, in coming into the light that Jesus offers, it would expose them. And they can't have that. One commentator puts it this way, they are far too satisfied with their own religion, with their own performance, with their temporary things in this world. And so they miss heaven standing right in front of them. See, the reality of Jesus' light shining into our lives, the reality is, is that like, it, it's rarely comfortable Right? When, somebody, when you're sleeping in the morning and somebody comes in and they flick on the light, that doesn't feel good. But the reality is you can't stay in bed all day. There's no life there. And Jesus comes shining the light that brings life into our world and into our lives. And it's uncomfortable when he does it. But he does it because he longs for our good. And he wants to, uh, us to experience the life he came to give that comes from walking in his light in the broad daylight. And that can be costly and it can be painful and it can be embarrassing to come into the light that Jesus has. But the truth that Jesus wants you to know this morning is that there is life that's found in coming into his light that you can't find anywhere else. See, the good news is that God, when he shines the light on us and he invites us to come clean into him, he doesn't do that so he can crush you. He doesn't do that so he can just like stick his finger on you and show you how messed up you are. He does it so that he can bring healing and freedom and restoration, right? Verse 12, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever holds to my teaching will know the truth and will be set free by it. Jesus isn't trying to bring guilt and shame and condemnation. He's trying to bring life and freedom. And while the light of Jesus shining into our darkness is rarely comfortable, it is always good. And it rouses us from our slumber in the darkness of sin so that we might rise and enjoy true life and freedom that comes from walking in his light. You see, there's life in Jesus' offer. But there's one more thing you've got to see this morning before we close. See, as the light of the world, Jesus came not just to reveal the truth about God and to reveal the truth about the darkness that is in us, but he came to dispel the darkness. 
And in order for him to do that, he would have to endure the darkness on our behalf. See, in verse 28, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees again. They refuse to believe the truth about him. He tells them this, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. The he there, that's actually added in our translations because it doesn't make sense otherwise. What he's saying is when you see me crucified, you'll know that I am the I am. That I'm God. That I've come to rescue and redeem and renew and restore. And the way that Jesus does that is by getting the end result of what we think we want. See, we live in such a way where we reject God's rule and leadership in our lives. We want his absence. And yet what Jesus does on the cross is he goes into the very absence of God so that you and I would never actually have to experience that darkness. He goes into the darkness for you so that you might never have to actually experience that. And he does it so that on the cross he might pay the penalty of your sin and your rebellion and and your rejection of God so that you and I might have the joy of experiencing his glorious presence now and forever. That we might be forgiven and cleansed and made new. Not just able to see the light, but able to enjoy the light. Able to embrace the light. Able to be empowered by his spirit to walk in the light. You see, and it's Jesus' substitutionary death for us. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion. Remembering that he took the darkness that we thought we wanted but could never survive. And he did it so that you and I might not just see him as the light, but might enjoy the warmth of the light that his presence brings in our lives. That we might have the life he came to give us. And so if you've come to Jesus, if you believe in him to be the source of light, to be the light of the world, then, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of communion, go back and take communion. There's a table on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and broke, blood shed and broken for you. And if you're here this morning and you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, you're starting to see his light shining, but you're not sure if it's the truth yet. And you're not sure if you want to submit to that truth. I just want you to know how welcome you are and like your questions are welcome and your process is welcome and the uncertainty is welcome. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. See, God is not after empty religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that not just says he's the truth, but that in joy follows him and walks in it. So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and this church is. And I want to encourage you as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you wherever you're at, talk with God. Some of you are here this morning and maybe for the first time you're starting to see by God's grace that Jesus is the light of the world and he's shining into the midst of your darkness, showing you the truth about God and about yourself. And that reality is both simultaneously comforting and deeply uncomfortable to you. Because at the same time, what's happening is you're seeing this glorious, beautiful picture about the God who is the light of the world, who comes shining the truth about what is really true about our world and about him. But what you're also seeing is that he is shining the truth into what's true about you. And your sin is not beautiful, and it's not captivating, and it's not compelling. And it's never fun to come into that light 
It can feel like when Jesus' light is shining, if you, it can feel like if you take another step further out into it, it's going to just burn you. And yet the offer that Jesus gives is that when we step into his light, when we follow him, you don't get burned. You don't get crushed. You find life. See, just before these verses, there's a story in the Gospel of John. We're going to come back to it at the very end of our study. Where this woman who's been caught in the act of adultery gets brought before Jesus, thrown at his feet. And she's condemned to die for everyone there. And instead of crushing her in the light of what's true, Jesus extends grace to her and he invites her to walk in a new life that's characterized by his light. You see, the light of Jesus does not crush you, it frees you. It's full of his grace and his mercy. If we might walk into the light and step into it, you'll find life there. The only place you find his judgment is in the when we refuse to come into the light and stay in darkness. So the invitation this morning for those of you who are here, you're still figuring out what you think about Jesus, is that as he shines light to you into the truth about him and in the truth about you, you have to say yes to both. So you can't get one without the other. And there's life when you receive what he says is true about you and him. And yet for those of you, there's others of you who are here and, and you have come to see and to believe Jesus as the light of the world. What he says about God and what he says about you, you see that as the truth. And the invitation is that we might keep asking his light to shine on us, in us, and through us. I want to invite you to ask the question this morning, where does the light of Jesus' truth need to keep shining in your heart? Where do you need to keep walking in his light so that you can experience the life that he came to give you? See, the upside-down reality of the gospel is not just that Jesus tells you the truth and then you know it all and just do it. The upside-down reality of the gospel is that we keep asking him to keep shining his light, revealing truth into our hearts each and every day. And the good news is, is, that, is that when you ask him to do that, what you don't end up in is guilt and shame. And so what happens is when you, when you believe that he's the light of the world, when you come to him to receive his offer of life through faith in him, what happens then is that when you ask him to show you, to shine his light into your darkness, you don't get shame and guilt, you get joy. Because what happens is you see that everything he's showing you is something he already died for. He already paid the penalty for. And so what happens is the more light you get of his, the more joy you get because you see all he's done for you. And you see how he knew everything he was buying when he got into you. And the more you see his light shining in your darkness, the more joy you'll have because you'll see all the darkness he's overcome for you. And there's life there. You see, if you want to have joy at Christmas, if you want to have life and hope, you can't just stick it on a tree. You can't just turn on the lights. You can't just sing the carols and sing the songs. If you want to have life and joy at Christmas, you have to realize how much you needed a Savior. And what you have to see is that in Jesus, the light of the world comes shining as the Savior you so desperately needed. He's come. And because he's come, there's joy at Christmas. Let's pray.
God, we are so grateful for you and for your word this morning. We're thankful for the reminder that as the light of the world, you don't just come shining as God's presence to crush us, but you come shining the truth about you and about God and about us so that we might have life that comes from walking in the light you give. God, where we are afraid to step into your light, might your spirit fill us with the confidence that comes from the joy of knowing that you don't crush us when we come into the light, but you heal us and restore us. Jesus, might the joy of your light-giving truth bring new life to our hearts this Christmas season. Jesus, we need a Savior. You've come, and so we can have joy in you. Amen.